We're in 2 Timothy chapter 3, our focus really just on verse 17. I'll begin reading at verse 10 and read through verse 17. 2 Timothy 3, 10 through 17, hear God's holy word. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned, and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it, And how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent or complete, other translations, equipped for every good work. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, the grass withers, the flower fails, but the word of our God endures forever. Let's pray. Lord, we do praise you for your word. We thank you that you continue to guide and direct us. Lord, grant us your blessing now, that as your word has been read, that it would indeed be impressed upon our hearts. Lord, we ask for your blessing on he who uh, now proclaims that word, but on each of us. Lord, speak, we pray. For we want to hear what you have for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, we return this evening looking at 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 and the doctrine of sola scriptura. Children, sola scriptura, we talked about that last week. It's a Latin phrase, but what does sola scriptura mean? Well, it means, do you remember children? It means Scripture alone or only the Scripture. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, you are not allowed to read any other books except for the Bible. So you can't go and tell mom and dad, Mom, I don't have to do my math homework because it's Scripture alone. No, that's not what we're talking about here. Scripture alone means that Scripture is our only rule for faith and life. Scripture teaches us who God is and what He requires of us, and it shows us how to live. It's our only rule. It's our authority. And there is no other rule. And so the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, teaches us how to glorify God and enjoy Him. Now, the Roman Catholic Church, leading up to the time of the Reformation, strayed from this belief They would say that the Bible is authoritative, but they would not proclaim, they did not, and actually still do not believe in Scripture or Bible alone. The Roman Catholic Church believes in Scripture plus tradition. They believe that Scripture and tradition make up together the Word of God. The Word is not merely the Bible, but the Bible and the church councils, the church's tradition. But what happens if a Roman Catholic sees, therefore, a contradiction between the Bible 
and Roman Catholic tradition. Well, they're going to have to go with tradition because the church in the mind of the Roman Catholic has to interpret the Bible for you. Now, Luther stood firmly against this mindset and this belief. And at the Diet of Worms, a church council meeting, they didn't eat worms, children. At the Diet of Worms, which was uh, a place, right, and the Diet is a meeting, uh, Luther boldly asserted when he was being accused. He said, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the Scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. May God help me. Amen. Luther's stand, you see, was clearly on the Bible. The Bible, he said, is my only rule for faith and life. Not the Bible and the Pope, not the Bible and church councils. The Bible is what must bind my conscience. The Bible must bind what I believe. Now let's review some things that we looked at last time. One, the Bible is breathed out by God. And the ESV is an excellent translation here because it says it's breathed out. It's breathed out of the mouth of God. The words of the Bible come from God as much as they they were breathed right out of His mouth. In other words, they don't merely inspire us. The Bible ought to inspire us, but that's not the point of this passage. But the words of the Bible are breathed out of the mouth of God. Second, therefore, we believe in what we ought to call, or what we do call, the verbal inspiration of the Bible. In other words, the verbiage, the words of the Bible come from God. The Bible doesn't come about by the interpretation of a man or any men. God speaks the very words. Now, translations of the Bible must therefore translate the words of the Bible because the words are inspired. We talked a little bit last time about the mindset of uh, some translations, not really translations, when they want to get at the thoughts behind the words. No, a Bible translation must translate the words and not merely the thoughts behind the words. Three, another thing we talked about last time, is though we believe in the verbal inspiration of the Bible, we also believe in what we call the organic inspiration of the Bible. In other words, the, the writers that God used, Moses and Peter and Paul and John and so forth, they weren't just there as dictators. Now what was that again? God and they write it down. God used them in their personalities. And so you can see, right, a difference between a writer like Luke and a writer like Paul and so forth. But nonetheless, even though God used them in their personalities, what comes about still nonetheless is the very word of God. 
For the Bible is inerrant and infallible, as it comes from the mouth of God who is inerrant and infallible. God does not and he cannot lie. Therefore, the Bible can and it needs to be relied upon. Five, we also talked talk last time about the Bible being clear. Or we spoke about the, the, the idea of the perspicuity of the Word of God. Perspicuity, a fancy word that simply means the Bible is clear. Now that doesn't mean that everything in the Bible is just simple and easy to understand. But it does mean that the Bible is understandable. God knows how to communicate clearly. Men suppress that truth. That's why there's so many uh, disagreements, but the Bible speaks clearly. So you don't have to be a theologian. You don't have to be educated to understand the Bible. Six, we also talked about the Bible being useful or profitable. As we said last time, it's not the job of the preacher to make the Bible useful. It is useful. It's useful for doctrine, for teaching. It's useful for reproof. It's useful for correction. It's useful for training in righteousness. And today we'll be looking especially at verse 17 and the sufficiency of the Word of God. Now, brothers and sisters, in Martin Luther's day, the battle was against Scripture and, well, especially church tradition and church councils. And the battle still exists today. But the issue we see among so-called Protestant churches still is the sufficiency of Scripture because so many seem to think that the Bible is not enough. It's not sufficient for the church's life. It's not sufficient for the church's work. It's not sufficient for you. And we'll be dealing with that uh, this evening. We'll look at three things. that The Bible is sufficient for our guidance It's sufficient, secondly, for evangelism. And finally, it's sufficient for sanctification. We'll take a a close look at verse 17. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Or together, 16 and 17, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Completely equipped for every good work. So how does this verse teach you the sufficiency of the Scriptures? Well, look at it here. The Scriptures, the writings are breathed out by God and they are profitable Profitable in all the ways that we looked at last time. They are able to make you complete. They are able to equip you for every good work. Not some works, not most works, but every good work. It's the Word of God that will make you complete as the Spirit works through the Word of God. And it will not only equip you and make you complete, it will thoroughly equip you, not somewhat equip you. Or to state it negatively, without the Word of God, you will not be equipped for the work that God has called us to do as believers or for life in general. But with the Word of God, you will be equipped. You don't need anything else. 
With the word of God, you have what you need. God, through the word, equips us. He guides us. Nothing else is needed. That's why a pastor's job must be to do what? To preach the word, to proclaim, to explain, to apply the word. Not giving you my own personal insights, but to proclaim the word of God. Now, we live in a world, you know this, that wants something extra, that wants something else, that wants something besides Scripture. Perhaps, right, a little inner voice. God, you know, I want to be able to hear you kind of speaking to me. Or, or a feeling within the heart. Or maybe a sign in the clouds. James Boyce, a pastor of not that long ago, writes this, he said, not long ago, one of my staff gave me a script to be used for an imagined evangelical psychiatric hotline, the kind of recorded message that one might hear when he or she calls a participating church for psychiatric help. And he said it went like this, if you are obsessive compulsive, please press one repeatedly. If you're codependent, please ask someone else to press two. If you have multiple personalities, please press, press three, four, five, and six. If you're paranoid, we know who you are and what you want. Just stay in the line so we can trace the call. If you're evangelical, listen carefully, and a little voice will tell you which number to press. Now that last one, isn't that how people often think how God communicates? Some little voice will just tell me what I should do. Some little feeling inside. Is that not how many evangelicals today think that they find guidance from the Lord? They look for, they want this little voice, this little feeling from God. Now that doesn't mean God doesn't impress the word upon us. But God guides through his word, not through some voice within, not through some feeling in our gut. It's kind of a, a mysticism type of thing. How many people have said, well, I prayed about it. And God told me to do it, so therefore I'm going to do it. But they're not able to quote scripture and say, well, thus says God, chapter and verse. No, they believe God told them because they had this feeling. But we know very well, don't we, that the heart is deceitful above all else. You can't follow your feelings. Now, the more we know the word, hopefully our feelings are in accord with the word, but our feelings are not what we follow. Our feelings are not our rule. God's word is our rule for faith and life. The scriptures equip us for every good work. And so if you're going to say, well, God told me so, you need to be ready to quote Scripture, chapter and verse. That's our rule, the only rule for faith and life. God works through the Word. The Spirit works through the Word. How many times have you heard somebody say, but you know what? I'm in, you know, I have a relationship with God, and I just feel this is right. 
I often like to say it doesn't matter how you feel. Now again, yes, I do hope the more we grow in the Word and the Spirit is working in us that our feelings are aligned with the Word. But again, our guidance can't be how we feel. We can easily justify sin. We ought not to, but we can easily do it. In fact, I remember when I was in college at Reformed Bible College. Now it's called Kuiper. I've told you the story in the past, and I was talking with a fellow student about whether uh, women should be able to serve as pastors. And I quoted the scriptures to him, 1 Timothy 2, verse 12, which says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. And he said to me, but Fern, what if a woman really feels the spirit inside calling her to be a preacher? Shouldn't she obey God? And I thought about how I wanted to respond to him. And I responded like this. I said, Al, what if I feel, and I said, I don't feel this, by the way, but what if I feel inside that you're wrong and I should punch you for such a, a comment? Should I follow that call inside? See, the Holy Spirit doesn't contradict himself, right? He's not going to give a feeling inside that is contrary to the plain teaching of the Word of God. We don't follow our feelings. We need to follow the Word of God. You see, this person had a problem, not just merely with the idea of whether a woman could serve as a pastor. His problem was deeper and greater and bigger than that. His problem was he didn't believe in the Bible alone. God will speak in other ways. God will give this voice, this feeling inside, and you have to follow that. Even, okay, he didn't say it this way, but that's really what his argument led to, even if it's contradictory to the Word of God. I can give you other examples as well. I remember a young man in North Dakota once coming to me and proclaiming that pastor so-and-so wasn't a believer, and he wasn't a believer, this young man said, because the Spirit said that to him. It was pointed out to this young man that he ought not bring an accusation against a pastor or an elder without another witness. Because 1 Timothy 5 says, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Finally, that young man did back down on the basis of that. But still, again, right, the problem of the mentality is he didn't believe in Scripture alone. Scripture isn't sufficient to guide. The Holy Spirit will guide just by a feeling. Or you can consider the ELCA, one of the most liberal denominations that uh, we have in our country, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, they've considered the ordination of homosexuals to the gospel ministry. And when one Reformed pastor questioned an EL, ELCA minister on this and asked, but what about what Scripture says? The ES, ELCA minister said, we did not look at Scripture when we ordained women years ago. Why would we look at Scripture now? We're going to look at reason and experience. Clearly. He didn't believe in Scripture alone. In fact, 
didn't seem like it believed in Scripture at all. But the Scripture is our guide, not Scripture plus. Not the Bible plus how we feel about it. Not the Bible plus what we, what we think we hear in our heads. Not the Bible plus our gut reaction. The Bible, the Scriptures, the writings are sufficient to guide you to thoroughly, completely equip you for every good work. Now someone might ask, but what do you do about matters where Scripture does not give you a direct answer? Like, how about the question, whom shall I marry? There's no verse of Scripture when I proposed to Lena that said, oh, yep, yep, there we go, Vern, marry Lena. So how do you figure things out? Well, you learn the principles of the word, right? The Bible gives principles for every situation. A believer can only marry a believer. And, well, I guess today I would even step back from that. A man can only marry a woman, and a woman can only marry a man. So you follow biblical principles. And there's more principles than that, but I'll leave it at that for the moment. Or what school should I go to? You've got to take other principles into fact when you, do, when you uh, analyze these situations. God has given us a mind. God has given us reason to apply the principles of the Bible to the situations that we face. We need to talk also then in regard to the cults. One of the marks of a cult is that they add or they take away from the Word of God. The Mormons, for example, add to the Bible three other books. Besides the Bible, they have the Book of Mormon, they have the Pearl of Great Price, and they have the Doctrine of the Covenants. So certainly they don't believe in the sufficiency of the Word of God, and even what they say of the Bible is that it's only, uh, you know, it's only a, a rule as far as, it, uh, doesn't, uh, as it's been translated or transmitted correctly. And so the Bible is even a lesser level than those other books. Brothers and sisters, I want to take a moment, too, to warn you of the great danger of the charismatic movement. They may claim at times that the Word of God is sufficient, but when they add to it special revelations, whether tongues or dreams or visions, or God just spoke to me, I heard this inner voice, or I heard without an audible voice within that God said this, they are denying the sufficiency of the Word of God. They are adding to the Word of God. We don't need these things. These things mislead us. The scripture alone is our rule for faith and life. Feelings, dreams, visions will mislead you. I've known of or heard of many examples of someone that followed what they thought was a prophecy or a dream and they got themselves in big trouble and came to realize later on that wasn't what God said. That was what I felt. The Word of God is sufficient to make you complete, sufficient to equip you for the Christian life. You need the Word. You ought to want the Word preached to you. The Word equips. Now, as in the past, God spoke and led His people in various ways. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 says, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our forefathers by the prophets. 
But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. In the Old Testament, right? Past days he spoke in different ways. But now he's spoken in his Son, and we have the Son's word with the Bible. There's no other special revelation. And so the Scriptures are sufficient to guide us. Secondly, the Scriptures are sufficient for evangelism. Now let me stress that as a church, we are called to evangelize. We need to evangelize. That's part of our duty. We need to be evangelizing. But the Scripture is sufficient for evangelism. In fact, it's the only thing that really works for evangelizing. Now often people today will say, you need other things. You need captivating music. You need emotional appeals. You need these pressure tactics. You need drama. You need some kind of a... Well, we've talked in the past, right, about uh, uh, pastors coming in on zip lines and uh, smoke machines for worship services and, and so forth. Now, I'm not saying that music is bad. We ought to be singing the praise of God. We ought to urge people to believe. But there's a difference between an urging and a pressure tactic. You see, our tactics aren't going to convert anyone. God works through the Bible. God works through the gospel. God works through the word. Remember what Peter said, 1 Peter 1.23. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, God brings to life through his word, the spirit working through that. The, the word is the, the tool that the Spirit chooses to use. And so what do we need to do in evangelizing? We share the word. We talk about what the Bible says. Sometimes we may quote it specifically. Sometimes we might summarize it. But God works through the Bible. But unfortunately, many people today do not actually believe this, and they lead on other things. Charles Finney uh, depended on many other things, certain crusade techniques. Others, such as those in the vineyard movement, looked to signs and wonders. But let me remind you of how Jesus went about evangelism. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Mark introduces Jesus as preaching the gospel. Or in James, James 1.21, we read this. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with, with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Receive the word which is able to save your souls. Romans 1.16 For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Or Ephesians 1.13 In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. God works through the word and evangelism. 
or in the very context here, right? Verse 15, and how from childhood you, Timothy, have been acquainted with the sacred scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The scriptures are sufficient. We need to be sharing the scriptures. And to get back to Jesus and how he went about evangelism, as I said, Mark's gospel begins pointing out that Jesus came preaching the gospel. And people were surprised at how he preached. Mark chapter 1, 21 and 22 And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. Or Mark 1.27. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. You may remember as well that Peter's mother-in-law got sick, had a fever. In that day, without antibiotics, that could be a very serious thing, and he healed her. And before you know it, the whole city is coming to Jesus for healing. Evening comes, everyone goes to bed, but remember what happens in the morning. What's Jesus doing in the morning? He goes out early to pray. Mark chapter 1 verse 35. And rising very early in the morning, while it's still dark, he departed and went into a desolate place, and there he prayed. And so they go looking for Jesus. Verses 36, 37. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said, everyone is looking for you. And though it's not spelled out, you can imagine them saying to Jesus, look, the crowds are here. Look, the numbers are here. Everyone's looking for you. You have found the the successful key to evangelism. You do miracles and they come. What did Jesus say? Verse 38. Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. Isn't it interesting? Jesus came to preach. That's what he wants to do. Jesus was refusing to carry on a healing ministry there at that time. It was not that he lost the power or that he didn't care about hurting people, but Jesus did not want to allow his miracles to eclipse his teaching. Otherwise, you have a country of healthy people physically who are on their way to hell. Again, it's not that we ought not have doctors for helping people. But Jesus' concern was preaching the gospel. Miracles don't convert anyone. Yeah, we talked about this morning, right, that they do give testimony that Jesus is indeed who he says. But when Jesus healed the paralytic, they wanted to kill him. And the rich man and Lazarus, you know that story as well. Both of these men die. Lazarus was carried into the presence of Abraham in paradise. The rich man goes to hell. And at first the rich man asked Abraham to send Lazarus to provide uh, some comfort uh, for him. And when that was said to be impossible, he asked Lazarus to be sent to go back and speak to his brothers since they were as wicked as he was. 
Luke 16, 27, 27 to 31 says this, And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Did you catch that? They're not going to believe a miracle if they're not going to believe the word. Miracles don't convert. The Spirit works through the Word. And so, brothers and sisters, we must take comfort in God and His Word. We might feel at times that we're sharing the Gospel that nobody's believing. And at the moment, perhaps they're not. But the Word of God is sufficient. God works through that Word. The Word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and spirit or joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God will work through His Word. His Word will not, as it says in Isaiah, return to Him void, but will accomplish precisely what He sent it to do. Trust the Word. That's what we need. That's sufficient in evangelism. And finally, I want you to see that the Word of God is sufficient for sanctification. This is also denied by so many so-called evangelicals today. Some may think there's a method. Follow these steps and you'll be holy. Or some say you need a second work of grace, a baptism of the Holy Spirit or something else. But brothers and sisters, if you are a believer, you do have the Spirit because you wouldn't have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ apart from the Spirit entering you and changing you. And so, brothers and sisters, if you want to grow in grace, you need to know what God has done for you. You need to know what His Word calls you to do. You need to know the Bible. You need to know what it says. Paul makes this clear, Romans 6.11, So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Those who are truly in Christ must know that they're new creatures in Christ. Right? New creatures. The old is gone. The new has come. We have a new heart. We can live out of thankfulness for God. And the Word of God teaches us how to live. Well, Romans 6, 12 to 14, following that verse 11, says this, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will, not, will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. So what's the word teaching. You, you, you are new creatures in Christ. Sin's no longer your master. So don't let it reign in you. The word instructs. The word strengthens through the working of the Spirit. Or as the psalmist said, I've hidden your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. And do you remember how Jesus was tempted by Satan in the desert? How did Jesus fight those temptations? He responded each time with what? The word. Luke 4, 1-13. 
And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, written, scriptures. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from there. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. Now Satan's using the scriptures in a twisting way. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Jesus responded to temptation with the word. How do we respond? How must we respond? We must respond with the word. Therefore, you need to be in the word. You need to be studying the word. And the word strengthens us through the working of the spirit in it. That doesn't mean battling sin is easy. I'm not saying if you know your Bible, temptations are easy. I'm not saying that. But how do you fight them? By the word of God. To battle sin, you don't need a second blessing. You need the word and the spirit working through that word. You need to know what it says. You need to know what Christ has done. You need to know what it promises. You need to know uh, where to rely. And so, brothers and sisters, be people of the word. Spend time reading the word of God every day. Read through whole books of the Bible, even if it's in more than just one sitting. Spend time remembering the word, hiding it in your heart. Think about it. The Bible is the word of God. How can it not be useful and sufficient for all that you need? Let's be people of the word. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, how we do thank you for your word. Lord, we rejoice that you have spoken to us and that you continue to speak through your word. And so, Lord, help us to rely upon you in your word. Lord, work in us. We know that the word is sufficient. Forgive us for those times when we act as if it isn't. But, Lord, work through that word in us, through the working of your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.